The Magician's Nephew uh, is one of his books, part of the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. And in this book, the hero is a boy named Diggory, who's living with his mother in the home of a spinster aunt and a magician kind of self-centered, almost evil uncle. Um, and his mother is slowly dying from some disease we don't know what. But a visitor comments that basically the only thing that could save her would be fruit from uh, the land of youth, that she's just too far gone. Um, and then Diggory and his friend Polly um, get used by his uncle to try out some magic rings that send them into other worlds. And in the process, Diggory inadvertently brings a witch into the land of Narnia, just as Aslan is creating it. And you know, as they see things coming to life all around them under the power of Aslan, Diggory's uncle, who also came along for the ride, exclaims, this must be the land of youth. Everything is coming to life here. And it signals to Diggory that this might be the hope for his mother. Uh, but very shortly after, Aslan confronts Diggory for bringing this evil into his world and, and asks Diggory to help him get rid of it, to help him put up a barrier that will keep the witch at bay for a while. And, and Diggory agrees to help, but Lewis writes, and when he had said yes, he thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Isn't that the picture of how sickness and death strike us? The brokenness of our world impacts us. The minor sicknesses that we, we just kind of deal with because we figure we'll recover from this. But then there's these other sicknesses that just strike terror and despair in our hearts. I mean, we prayed for some this morning, cancer. That, that diagnosis just leaves us hopeless. Um, you know, it, it leaves us searching for hope anywhere, help in any way. For the Christian and non-Christian alike, the serious illnesses bring us to an attitude like Diggory's. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure me or my loved ones? And in our passage today in Luke uh, 5, 12 through 16, and you'll be glad I'm only talking about four verses today. It's about a man who came to Jesus with one of these horrible diseases. And as we approach this account, we need to remind ourselves that Luke isn't just telling random stories. Remember we, the last time I preached, he said that Luke is giving an orderly account for us, or he was writing to Theophilus, that we may have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. So Luke's goal isn't just to tell us a nice story, you know, some amazing thing that Jesus did, but he's trying to introduce us to the nature of who Jesus is through these eyewitness stories about his life and ministry. Um, so that Theophilus, and so that we can know for certain the things that we believe about him, we can know what's true about him. So Luke is telling this story with a purpose, to illustrate truths or um, a truth about Jesus. And, and we need to be on the lookout for that as we look at it. So the passage opens up, again, Luke 5, 12. While he, and it's Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. 
So immediately before this story, Jesus was ministering around the lake of Gennesaret, which is actually another name for the Sea of Galilee. So we assume he's in that general area, but Luke doesn't doesn't give us a lot of detail on that. But what he does tell us is that there came a man full of leprosy, which is just one of those horrible, devastating diseases that leaves the victim desperately seeking for hope anywhere, seeking for something that can help. And even today, there's an effective vaccine against uh, leprosy, and there's antibiotics that can eliminate it, but the World Health Organization considers leprosy an urgent medical condition that is dangerous or even life-threatening if untreated. It's a contagious bacterial infection that affects the skin and the nervous system, and the damage to nerves makes the appendages become numb and immovable. They contract into these useless claw-like shapes, and because there's no feeling, they get damaged because the victim doesn't feel pain. Dr. Paul Brandt, who's one of the pioneers in this area, talked about lepers in India where the rats would come and literally eat their fingers and toes off at night as they slept because they couldn't feel it happening. So the infectious nature of the disease and the horrible outward deformations led this to be a huge social stigma and led to the isolation of leprosy victims. Even today when it's a treatable disease, um, lepers are generally isolated in one of over 700 active leper colonies in the world today. We have one still in the U.S. in Hawaii um, on, on an island, Molokai. Um, and up until 1999, there's actually a leper colony in Louisiana. Um, and there's still about 100 cases of leprosy a year in the U.S. So it's not just back in, in Bible times. But in Jesus' day, the lepers were forced to live on the outskirts of civilization. They were forbidden from entering the city. Um, that was a biblical rule. Uh, and that's where everybody else lived. And, and so whenever anybody came near them, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, and back away, try to avoid contact. If they approached clean people, they were likely to get stones and sticks and whatever thrown at them because people did not want to risk getting this disease. Eat, their friends and family might bring food outside the camp for them so that they could eat. They're, they might be able to get some provisions. But even then, these loved ones had to leave things at a safe distance and back away so that the disease didn't spread. So people with leprosy were totally cut off from human contact. And for those of us who have been living through COVID, we, we sort of have a feel for that. You know, we've had times where we've had to isolate maybe for a week or 10 days. Can you imagine being isolated for years from your family, from your spouse, from your children for the remainder of your life? No telephone, no internet communications, no web gatherings. Um, your life basically consists of a living death. And slowly, over the course of years, you gradually die, gradually losing more and more of your extremities and seeing them become disfigured, damaged, or even rot off. So that's the condition of this man who comes to Jesus. And he's not in the early stages of the disease. He doesn't just have one little spot. Luke says he was full of leprosy. He was covered. Likely he had been a leper for years probably being a man, he had been the head of a household providing for his wife and family. So when he got leprosy, it wasn't just impacting him. His whole family were plunged into poverty in all likelihood. 
And so he had that on top of this battle with this horrible disease and social stigma. And so he wasn't just a sick man. He was a broken-hearted man, isolated from the people he loved. His only human contact might have been with fellow lepers and had been going on for years. This man somehow heard about Jesus and Luke says, there came a man. So this man with leprosy came to Jesus. It's not one of these things where Jesus was going along and just happened to bump into this guy. The man went looking for Jesus. And his heart cry was like Diggory's heart cry. It was, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure me? Now notice where Jesus is. Luke says, while Jesus was in one of the cities. Since most of the cities were walled for protection, it's pretty clear when you're in the city or out of the city. And Jesus was in the city. And lepers were not allowed in the city. So somehow this man had snuck into the city, disguised himself. He was so desperate to get to Jesus that somehow he had gotten through the barriers, snuck into town, and found Jesus. This man was so determined to find Jesus that man-made barriers could not keep him away. And Luke says, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In his desperate plea to Jesus, I think this man actually tells us as much in what he doesn't say as what he does say. Notice that he doesn't start off with a list of his credentials, of of his good deeds. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm a good Jewish man. I'm a faithful husband. I'm a loving father. I'm an honest businessman. I'm a hard worker. I regularly attend synagogue. I read my Bible and pray every day. I give to the Lord's work. I help old ladies across the street. He doesn't say any of that. He comes to Jesus with nothing but himself. And that's a really good place to be, empty of ourselves and all our self-worth and all our pride. God isn't impressed with our credentials. We can't earn his favor. We don't deserve his kindness. And based on our own merits and achievements, the only thing we deserve is his wrath. We deserve leprosy. We deserve worse than that. So our good deeds aren't a basis for convincing God to do something for us. The man also doesn't come with a list of promises. He doesn't say, oh God, if you just heal me, I'll be a better man. I'll give more to the church. I'll teach Sunday school. If you heal me, I'll stop doing, you name it. Or I'll start doing, you know, fill in the blank. Or if you heal me, I'll be a missionary to the deepest, darkest Africa or North Korea or wherever, you know, you think would be horrible to go. I'll do anything, Lord. The bottom line is that you and I have nothing of value to offer to God. Let's face it, he made everything that exists. What could we give him that he doesn't have already? If he wanted more of anything, he could make it. He's not dependent on us for anything, so we can't buy his favor. There's nothing of value that we can offer him. So how does the man come? What does he say? He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. His statement isn't about him, it's about Jesus. Healing is not about who we are. It's about who God is. He says, Lord. He, he affirms that Jesus is the Lord, the eternal Lord, and his Lord. The Lord over disease, the Lord over all. There's nothing too hard for him. There's nothing that will not obey his command. 
And then he says, if you will. So Jesus, you can do anything you want to because you're Lord of all. If you want to, it can, you can do what's humanly impossible. You can make me clean. Not based on my merits, but because of who you are. I don't know if this is in your will, but if it is, you can make me whole. And Jesus responds, he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. This verse is so simple and yet so profound. The first thing Jesus does is stretch out his hand to touch this poor man. Luke captures just a simple gesture of human empathy, but it's so profound. The man's been unclean and untouchable for years. No one dared touch him, not even his own wife and children, not even his mother. He's a terror for all who do not have leprosy. And as much as his body is wasting away physically, his humanity, his emotional being is wasting away even more. He's longing for a warm, nurturing touch, for an accepting touch, for that physical connection with another human being. And Jesus boldly reaches out and crosses that divide that no one else dared to cross and touches him before he's cleansed. Before he's cleansed. While he's still contagious. God loves us enough to get his hands dirty in order to meet us in our deepest need. Jesus is the initiator. This isn't like the woman with the issue of blood who snuck up and touched the hem of his garment. Jesus reached out and touched this man. He reaches across the divide that separates us. He loves us enough to embrace even the ugliness of our sin, which honestly is far worse than leprosy, in order to rescue us. It's God who takes the risk. It's God who shoulders the full cost. But Jesus doesn't stop with just connecting with this man emotionally. Jesus addresses his physical need as well. The man said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus responded in the same way. He says, I will be clean. Jesus' will, Jesus' desire was that this man would be clean. I don't think this is just a disinterested, well, okay, since you asked, you know, I can, I can do that for you. You know, you bothered me, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I don't have a good reason to say no. No, I think this was a passionate, I will. I love you. I hate what this disease has done to you. Yes, I would love to set you free. I love the picture that C.S. Lewis paints again in, in The Magician's Nephew. You recall our friend Diggory cried out to, to Aslan and said, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? And Lewis continues, up till then he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, Aslan said, I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. I love this picture of the heart of God, this image that he's not only aware of our grief, he feels it deeply. In fact, the sickness and sin and death that we experience grieve him even more than they grieve us. 
because we're that proverbial fish that doesn't even know it's wet. But Jesus, the Lord, lives in holiness. He knows how the world was meant to be. He knows more fully than we do the horrible impact of sin and how it's destroying his precious creation. It is destroying the relationships that we were made for, the relationship with him, the one that he's always wanted to have with man. The brokenness of our world actually hurts him more than it hurts us. And we're so quick to believe that he doesn't really care about our griefs. We believe that he doesn't really see the things that hurt us, that he's unmoved by the things that weigh heavily on our hearts. But that's just not true. He aches over the things that grieve us, things like sickness and sin and death. And Jesus said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses command, commanded for proof to them. As soon as Jesus says, I will be clean, it's so. The leprosy leaves the man and he's clean. Luke doesn't say clearly, but I believe the man was fully restored. If he'd lost appendages, they were back. That he was back to normal. Nothing can resist the will of God. And this is an incredible miracle. And although it's not said, you can imagine this man was, was jumping around and shouting for joy. And the next thing you know, the Jerusalem Post and Fox News show up to broadcast to the world this incredible miracle. There's posters printed and websites launched to, with the before and after pictures of the man and you know, before missing the, the fingers and covered with leprosy bumps and now him standing beside Jesus completely healed. And the miracle ministry is launched. They're filling synagogues and stadiums around Israel and huge crowds needing healing are coming. And there's more curious onlookers who just want to watch the miracles happen, right? Is, isn't that what happens today? I think of people like Benny Hinn and Oral Roberts and Peter Popoff and Catherine Kuhlman, maybe some of those names really from the past, but they built these huge healing ministries, miracle ministries, putting the spotlights on themselves and on their amazing miracle ministries and frankly lining their own pockets. But what does Luke record immediately following this? Jesus charges the man not to tell anyone. Why? I can think of at least two reasons. First, Jesus healed the man because he loved him, not because he wanted notoriety. It was an act of love and grace, a gift from Jesus to this man, not an excuse to build a following. Jesus wasn't saying, wow, you know, if I actually heal this guy, my ministry will explode because it would be such a clear miracle and so many people know this guy and this will be great. That wasn't Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart was, I love you. I want to touch you. And the second and perhaps the main reason to urge him to be quiet is Jesus didn't want a following of miracle seekers. He wanted a following of Lord seekers. He didn't want people looking for a thrill or a feel good. He wants people who recognize him as Lord of all, the one they desperately need. People who want him, not just what he can do for them. So his next instructions to the man were to go and fulfill the, the requirements that are recorded in Leviticus 13 and 14. There are biblical requirements for the cleansing of somebody with leprosy. And that was for that person to go to the priest, 
or the priest went act, actually went out of the town to him um, to examine him. And over a series of, of week intervals, the, the priest would look at him and make sure that he was really clean and not, you know, things weren't progressing. And then there were sacrifices to be made. And Jesus' reason was for a proof to them. And again, I can think of two things that Jesus was wanting to prove. First, he wanted to show them that he was acting biblically, because certainly later in his ministry, they accused him of being a sinner, of not following Moses' law. They like to accuse Jesus of breaking the law. And so here he's giving them a testimony that he's keeping the law and his followers do the same. And second, I think it's to prove to religious leaders that he's the Messiah that they're looking for. Again and again, from the miraculous birth of John the Baptist to Herod calling these guys in to find out where the Messiah was to be born, to the boy Jesus talking to them in the temple, and then Jesus teaching and doing miracles in their presence, God was reaching out to these religious leaders. He was showing them the truth of the gospel. He was trying to convince them of, you know, that Jesus was the Messiah, of their need for him, but their hearts were hard. They refused to seek and to acknowledge him as Lord. So we assume that this man who was healed was honorable and did as Jesus instructed him to do. But Luke says, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. I honestly, I, I don't think this man was a blab. I think he followed Jesus's instructions and tried to keep it quiet. But it's pretty tough when, you know, Joe, Joe the leper shows up at home and all of a sudden he's clean and fully restored, you know, and people are going to want to know, hey, what happened to you? Um, so I'm sure it got talked about. And I would imagine the priest, too, saw this guy and, wow, you know, I haven't seen that before, this leper becoming clean. And so they were talking about it, too. Um, so pretty soon, word spread and the crowds followed him to receive a miracle or to see someone healed. Um, you know, there was a lot of thrill seekers and maybe more thrill seekers than Lord seekers again. But Jesus wasn't looking for the affirmation of crowds or thrill seekers. Luke concludes this passage with, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus needed time alone with his father for refreshing and focus. In his full humanness, Jesus needed to be in tune with the father through the Holy Spirit, to be able to walk in obedience to him amidst the pressures and thrill of notoriety. And if Jesus needed that, we need it even more. When things are exciting and going our way, there may be times, those may be the times where we most need to retreat and seek God's face to be sure that we don't follow our deceptive hearts into one of Satan's traps. They tend to be the times when we say, ah, God, I don't need you. Things are going great. But maybe those are the times when we most need to come away and have that, that quiet time prayer with Jesus. So now, you knew it's far too soon for me to wrap up. So I want to loop back um, to the leper's request and Jesus' response to it. Jesus says, I will be clean. As I said at the beginning, Luke is telling us stories about Jesus to try to try to convince us of aspects of his nature, of truths about Jesus and about God. And I think this is one of them. I think it's a window into the nature of God that he's observing in Jesus. Sickness and death itself are things that God's, God hates. 
they're not part of the original creation. They came with the fall. They're a consequence of sin, and, and God hates them. His plan is to eliminate them. And all things equal, his will, his desire is that we be clean, that, that we would be made whole physically, spiritually, emotionally. That's the will of God. So if, if that's the case, if God's heart is for us to be healed why are we sick? And why do we pray so often on Sunday morning for people to be healed and not necessarily see miraculous healings? I mean, we all know of godly people suffering with overwhelming diseases with no miraculous healing. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a woman who has loved, loved and served the Lord as faithfully as anyone I know. But she's been a quadriplegic for more than 50 years and she suffered at least two bouts with breast cancer. Now most of us sitting here don't have issues that are that severe, but if it's the Lord's will for us to be healthy, why do so many of us sitting here have health issues? I mean, I wear glasses. If I did not have glasses on, I couldn't see past the first row, clearly. You know, I'm not blind, but it would seriously impact my life if it weren't for glasses. And I could go into my other aches and pains, but I'm not going to. But I would guess that everybody sitting here, at least over the age of 40, has something that they could point to to say, you know, this isn't, isn't quite right. This isn't, and, and the older we get, the more and the worse those things get, right? So if we take Jesus's I will as an indication of God's heart with regard to sickness, that God would happily eliminate it, why is it so infrequent that we see obvious healings when we pray for them? Now, there are certainly Christian teachers, like I referred to earlier, who would proclaim that God wants to heal all of us. And if we're not healed, the issue is a lack of faith. It's because we don't really believe that he will heal us. It's because we're making negative confessions rather than positive ones. And I would say faith certainly has something to do with it. But in and and for example, in Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry in his hometown, Matthew says, and Jesus did not do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. That the lack of faith in his hometown impacted what Jesus did there. Mark tells the story of Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration to find his disciples in the middle of a commotion. A man has brought them his son to be delivered from a demon, and they were unable to do it. And the father said to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That statement, all things are possible for one who believes, is one of those things that, that people in the faith movement point to and like to quote as a promise that we can have healing or wealth or anything we ask for if we have enough faith and truly believe. All we need is the right combination of words and the right mental contortions, and he will give us what we want. To my mind, that's reducing God to a spiritual vending machine. We're the ones in charge. We make our selection. We put in the right things, and God spits it out. He's at our beck and call. He does what we want as long as we have faith. Well, that's not faith at all. I think the leper gives us a picture of real faith. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
He affirms Jesus' lordship, his ability to do anything. It's a statement of faith in the power of Jesus and an acknowledgement that he's my Lord and he tells me what to do. I don't tell him what to do. I'm dependent on his will. If he wills that I be sick, he's Lord. In faith, I trust him that it's good, even if it doesn't necessarily feel good to me right now. Look at the parallel between the leper's request and Jesus' prayer in the garden on the night he was betrayed. Jesus said, Father, if you're willing. Lord, if you will. Remove this cup from me. You can make me clean. Nevertheless, Jesus adds in, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was facing excruciating pain, suffering, and death. He also acknowledges that if the Father is willing, that, could, that cup could pass. It could all be taken away. He could rescue Jesus from the situation that he's in. But he knows in his heart of hearts that the Father's will is best. That the Father's will is always loving. It's always good. And he yields himself to it. So true faith brings my will under the subjection to God's, in trust of his loving kindness towards me. It never brings him into subjection to me. Faith matters, but it's not the only thing. Do you remember Elisha, the prophet of Israel during the reign of the kings? And Elisha arguably did more mighty miracles than anybody but Jesus. Elisha was the prophet who healed Naaman the leper, he was the one who prayed for the Shunammite son to be restored to life. If anyone had faith to see God do a miracle, it was Elisha. But in 2 Kings 13, we read, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness with which he was to die. What? This guy who healed all kinds of people, who had all this faith in God, he's sick and he's going to die? And it goes on, so Elisha died and they buried him. And now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So here Elisha had the faith to heal the leper. He had the faith to raise a boy from the dead. He was so full of the power of God that even his bones, when we threw a dead guy on him, raised the dead guy to life. And when Joanna and I were talking, I, I don't understand the theology of that. I, I, I don't at all. But, but that's what it records in the scripture. But this man had so much faith, but he got sick and he died. And I've got news for you. Every great man of faith since the dawn of time, except for a very few exceptions, I can think of two, died. And most of them didn't just die for no reason. They died of something. Faith is important, but it's not the sole determinant of whether we experience God's healing. Sickness is sometimes a consequence of sin in the Bible. Um, in Second Chronicles, we read about King Uzziah, that he became strong and he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the, al on the altar of incense. That was something only the priests were supposed to do, but he got cocky and decided to do it himself. And he was immediately struck with leprosy before he even got out of the, the temple. And it stayed with him for years until he died. In Acts, Luke tells the story of 
Elimas, the magician who was struck with blindness for trying to make a government official turn away from the Lord when Paul was ministering to him. And those are just a few of the accounts. And there's lots of accounts in scripture of people being afflicted with sickness as a consequence of sin, as part of God's judgment. But with that, we dare not start assuming that everybody who has some sickness is, ah, God's talking to you about something. You must have really messed up. You must have some big sin. Remember when Jesus encountered the man born blind and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? If there's something wrong with him, he must have sinned. That he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God's might be displayed in him. The work of God might be displayed in him. So God can use sickness to display his power. It might be through a powerful healing, like this man who was born blind, but it can also be a display of his power to sustain and work through a weak person. Again, going back to Johnny, she, she says, the weaker I am, the harder I must lean on God's grace. The harder I lean on him, the stronger I discover him to be, and the bolder my testimony to his grace. I mean, her life is a living picture of God's grace and power at work in a frail human being that trusts him. Think of Paul. He was a great man of faith. He zealously served the Lord. Um, but he says, after telling about the spectacular vision he had of heaven, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because of this awesome vision he'd had, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know what that is, but almost certainly some sickness. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So he prayed about it. He sought the Lord. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So God can use sickness to make sure our focus is on him and not on us and our abilities. That his power can be shown to work even in a frail, broken vessel. Paul prayed diligently that this thorn in the flesh would be removed, but God made it clear that it should remain, that he was using it. So if God hates sickness... If his will is that it be eliminated, how is it that he uses it? Does God hate it, or is it a tool he uses? Well, I think actually both. Again, Johnny says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I quote a lot from Johnny. She's been living this and thinking a lot about it and has a lot of insights because of her reality. The reality that we all face, like I've said before, is that we live in this time between the times, like to say, um, in the already but not yet. For those of us whose sins have been covered by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, who live under the lordship of Jesus, we look forward to an eternal kingdom where there will be no sickness. But that's not where we live right now. Now we live in a world where sickness abounds. We also live in a world where weeds abound. And where we have to earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. And where there's pain in childbirth. And where we all die. And where we struggle with the sinful nature within us. 
Although through the sacrifice of Jesus we've been set free from the curse of sin and death, we don't yet experience freedom from its consequences. We've been adopted into God's family, but we haven't yet received the full inheritance. We eagerly look forward to the day when all these things, all these consequences of sin are no longer true, when we enter fully into the glorious inheritance that God has prepared for us. And God looks forward to that day with great enthusiasm and anticipation, I believe, too. All of heaven waits. But for now, God continues to use those things like sickness and weeds and equipment breakdowns and to accomplish his will in us and in the watching world. So to conclude, when we find ourselves needing healing, I think our prayer should be that of the man with leprosy. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. With the addition of Jesus' words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Lord, you are Lord. We are not. Um, God, sometimes we don't understand all that you are doing, but I thank you that we can trust that you are good, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are making all things work together for your good purposes. Um, so, Lord, we pray that you would have your will in our lives, even when it hurts, even when it's not what we want, trusting that we have far greater things ahead, Lord, in, in our eternal inheritance with you. And Lord, we, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can, stand with me. Jesus, the very thought of you it fills my heart with love jesus you burn like wildfire and i am overcome lover of my soul even unto death with my every breath i will love you Lover of my soul, even unto death, with my every breath I will love you. Jesus, you are my only hope, and you my pride shall be. Jesus, you are my glory now and in eternity. Lover of my soul, even unto death, with my every breath I will love you. Lover of my soul, even unto death, with my every breath, I will love you. In my darkest hour, in humiliation, I will wait for you. I am not forsaken, though I lose my life. 
though my breath be taken, I will wait for you. I am not forsaken, one thing I desire, to see you in your beauty, you are my delight. Yeah, you are my glory, you my sacrifice. You are my glory. Go to the next slide, Paul. Lover of my soul, even unto death, with my every breath, I will love you. Lover of my soul, even unto death, with my every breath, I will love you. Have a great week. Thank you.